Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. From Bloomberg World Headquarters, I'm Charlie Pellet. 13 minutes to go ahead of the close. On this Friday, August 11th, we have got the Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ, all moving higher. S&P up 5 to 24.43, a gain there of two-tenths of 1%. Markets showing signs of stabilizing after days of verbal sparring between the United States and North Korea. The Dow up 36, up two-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ up 43, up seven-tenths of 1%. Gold up 650 the ounce to 12.93, up five tenths of one percent. The tenure up 3.30 seconds, the yield 2.19 percent. Crude oil up four tenths of one percent. A barrel of West Texas Intermediate at 48.78 right now. So again, Nasdaq up 43, up seven tenths of one percent. The S&P up two tenths of one percent. The Dow also higher by two tenths of one percent. I'm Charlie Pellet. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Thank you very much, Charlie Pellet. The ETF report coming up is brought to you by BlackRock. Worried about market volatility? Well, minimum volatility strategies may be able to help. To learn more, please visit blackrock.com slash factors. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, Jenna Dagenhart has this wonderful ETF report. ETF assets are surpassing the products that inspired their creation. That's index mutual funds. Yeah, you know, they definitely get all the attention. We talk about passive, everybody thinks, oh, ETF this, ETF that. They are growing faster than any other investment vehicle. We're talking about a trillion dollars in the last uh, two years. Bloomberg Intelligence ETF analyst Eric Balchunas says ETF growth has been driven more by inflows than that of mutual funds partially because their flexibility allows them to be used by both traders and investors for a variety of purposes. He adds that they've been attracting more media interest, too. You know, when you hear about the growth of passive, it tends to be tagged to ETFs, and they are definitely the bigger growth area in passive. But what gets overshadowed is TIFFs, traditional index funds. These are simply just mutual funds that track an index. They tend to be a little more boring. They don't trade on an exchange, but they're really raking in the dough. So if you look at the assets, they have the same. So when you think passive has about $6 trillion in U.S. assets. Three is ETFs, but three is index mutual funds. I'm Jenna Dagenhart, and that's your Bloomberg ETF report. Thank you very much, Jenna. Well, this portion of Bloomberg Markets uh, is brought to you by Eisner Amper. Eisner Amper's international tax professionals. Multinational companies must prepare for tax reform. What about transfer pricing, new territorial taxes, and what about cash repatriation? EisnerAmper.com slash 2017 tax reform. We are looking at that very carefully. Uh, and uh, I hope that they are going to fully understand the gravity of what I said. And what I said is what I mean. So hopefully they'll understand, Peter, exactly uh, what I said and the meaning of those words. Those words are very, very easy to understand. Understanding what he said. I don't know if I understand what he said, so I'm really hoping that Justin Sink and Roger Cressy understand what was said and what those important words mean. Justin Sink's the Bloomberg News White House reporter and Roger Cressy is a former White House counterterrorism official, both joining me right now on the phone. Uh, uh, Justin, let me start with you. Um, that was a really interesting uh, uh, expression there from the president. <laughs> what, were there code words somewhere? Is that what, 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 what is to make of this? Well, a little bit later in the same uh, back and forth, uh, he seemed to clarify slightly, although not fully, his remarks. He said, you know, if uh, the regime in North Korea – utters one threat in the the form of what he called a, quote, overt threat or does anything with respect to Guam or anywhere else that's an American territory or American ally, he'll truly regret it. And so what the president seems to be saying is 
you know, if there is a direct provocation, if there is any sort of, uh, you know, attempt to attack the U.S. or an ally, that it would be met with, um, obviously, a, a strong response. But what what is unclear is what he meant by by overt threat. I, you could really read that as what uh, North Korea has been doing for decades, or you could read it as uh, a signal that, you know, uh, some sort of military escalation was imminent. And I, th- I think what we're taking away from all of this is that the president is being deliberately vague, but uh, attempting to sort of broadcast some level of uncertainty because he sees a strategic advantage there. Roger Cressy, uh, what do you make of all this? Well, we're seeing a president who you know, conducts public diplomacy unlike anything we've seen in recent memory. I think that's the understatement. Um, and he talks tough in a way that no prior president has has done in very blunt, sometimes interesting language. I think the question is, will his message resonate um, in Pyongyang and will it resonate in Beijing? What I found very interesting was what the Chinese said through one of their state newspapers, which was, if the North Koreans do any type of um, unilateral action and the United States retaliates in response, we're going to sit it out. But if the United States acts first and targets North Korea, then we're going to basically defend our interests. So they've, they've sent a note, they've sent a message to the North Koreans, which is you can continue to talk in that typical rhetoric that they've used for decades, as Justin just said. Um, but if you do any action and the United States does respond, don't look for us to, uh, to help you out. Um, is that different than what we've seen in the past? It is to a certain degree. I think the uh, the Chinese have always been, starting in the, in the Korean War, worried about instability on their border, right? And they, while they totally appreciate that where this is, process is going right now is not sustainable, it's not tenable, um, where they draw their red line is if the United States is going to take any action that's going to further uh, decrease the stability on the Korean Peninsula. What they're saying, though, to the North Koreans is that you are now entering a place where if you do take action that crosses whatever red line they have, have characterized it as that, and the United States responds, you know, we're not going to intervene. I mean, so I think there is an appreciable difference there. And I don't think the North Koreans will act unilaterally against U.S. interests. They've acted against South Korean interests repeatedly, um, but that's a red line they've been unwilling to cross just yet, and that's the real issue and the real challenge. Justin, um, there's also been some reporting that says that South Korea is looking at increasing their capacity for their their inter-ballistic missiles, I should say intercontinental, but their ballistic missiles, um, uh, both increasing their payloads and their numbers, and has asked the U.S. for permission to do so. Um, That wouldn't be just a threat to North Korea. That would be a threat to China as well. Um, Is there any indication that that's going to happen, and and what, uh, 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 what, what could that do for the stability of the region? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the U.S. has generally been supportive of South Korean attempts um, to build up especially defensive capacity. This is particularly interesting because there's a new president uh, in South Korea who who campaigned on the idea of trying to um, improve relations with the North, um, had been critical of the FAD missile defense shield that the U.S. has been pushing to install uh, 
on the peninsula, which has really upset the, the, the Chinese. And so what you're seeing with this escalating rhetoric is the sort of political sands moving, uh, of course, not just here in the United States, but uh, across Asia. And all of this rhetoric is leading, I think, to a lot more skittishness, although the consequences of any sort of actual hot military breakout would be uh, so devastating, I think, for all sides involved that that – uh, you know, we haven't quite seen the, the move from sort of posturing and rhetoric into, okay, people need to be concerned that, a, that an actual war might break out. Uh, let me put the same question to you, Roger. Uh, missiles and South Korean expansion thereof, what does it mean? Well, in the short term, what it means, as Justin said, you know, you, you can provide additional um, defensive capability, Patriot Pac-3, uh, further acceleration of FAD and the deployments associated with that. Um, I think the the issue still is, are are we dealing with a rational actor in Pyongyang? And that is, when I was at the Pentagon in the late 1990s and I was involved in war plan review and you looked at our operational plans and our contingency plans and we were looking at different scenarios back then, it was always a question of who the rational actor was in power. And if we assume this is a rational actor, and, you know, most rational actors, number one objective is survival. And even this guy, I think, is not going to is not going to throw that objective away. It's a question of the moves and the rhetoric that the United States makes with South Korea and also with Japan. I mean, we've got to keep Japan in the context here because from a Chinese perspective, right. a, a Japan that right. is looking at this far more militarily is a... Indeed. Roger, Roger. Thank you very much. Roger Cressy, uh, former White House counterterrorism official, and Justin Sink from Bloomberg News.